Welcome to PA Centered, a podcast designed to help listeners be a part of the solution to end sexual harassment, abuse, and assault. Each episode, we will take on a topic or current event to help spark conversation and break down barriers to building communities free from sexual violence. Hi, I'm Mallory Michael. I use she, her pronouns, and I am the Prevention and Evaluation Coordinator at the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape. I'll be your host today as we're joined by my PCAR colleagues, Jamie and Zozan, to talk about victim blaming and selective compassion. Welcome, Zozan and Jamie. Hi, everyone. Hi, thanks for having us. So we're going to start our conversation today discussing victim blaming. Victim blaming occurs anytime someone says or implies that a sexual assault was the victim's fault. Victim blaming can be defined as someone saying, implying, or treating a person who has experienced harmful or abusive behavior, like sexual assault, as if it was a result of something they did or said, instead of placing the responsibility where it belongs, on the person who harmed them. When victim blaming occurs in the media, in response to what we see happen to others, from people we know, it not only discourages survivors from coming forward, but it actively shifts focus away from holding the person doing the harm accountable. So Jamie, why do people even victim blame or blame victims? So the big term I like to use for this um, is cognitive dissonance, um, which really is just the idea that our brains cannot hold space for two contrasting beliefs at the same time. Um, So I like to think of, you know, maybe personally. So let's say, you know, somebody um, that is a perpetrator in a sex abuse case in your town. Um, Some thoughts that might come to your head are, you know, the situation doesn't align with my values or my idea of the world. And you also might be thinking personally, how could I know this person and them do these awful things? I think this is also compounded whenever we know the um, alleged perpetrator personally, uh, right? If that's like your doctor or even a friend or a colleague. I think too about an experiment that was done in 1966 that's really telling about victim blaming. Um, So it's this study of women in a rather large study um, where groups of women were watching just one other woman being shocked um, if they ans- if she answered some questions incorrectly. Um, so she would receive these like shocks and they would be able to see that. Um, of course, this woman wasn't actually being shocked. She was just an actor, but a good one. Um, so initially these participants were really upset about this happening to this woman. She looked like she was in a lot of pain, you know, um, visibly upset um, and continuing to happen. So then they shifted um, one group uh, in the experiment and they were offered the ability to compensate the woman with money when she answered correctly. And when she did that, that also stopped the shocks for the wrong answers. So she was compensated for good answers and it also stopped the shocks. So they did this, they did surveys at the end and the results were overwhelming that participants um, in the group that was able to stop the shocks had viewed the woman as a good person But the group that had no control viewed her as a bad person who deserved to be shocked. They saw this overwhelmingly in the results. So why? Why does this happen? And it goes back to this idea of experiencing a lack of control watching this happen, right? Um, And if we're able to have this idea and make make up um, 
our own thoughts about people in the world, it allows us to keep a positive view of our world and reinforces an idea that bad things only happen to bad people, right? Um, it also personally allows us to feel safer. This wouldn't or couldn't happen to me personally because I'm a good person. Um, so bad things don't happen to me. It literally um, is just easier and feels safer for us to blame a victim than to face the reality of a situation. Mm, thank you so much, Jamie. Yeah, I like that you said that like it just feels safer for us, right? To put the blame on somebody else than, than what's actually happening. Yeah. So this leads into our next idea of uh, selective compassion. So Zan, can you tell us what that is? Yeah, of course. So <clears throat> selective compassion or selective empathy um, really is a concept that suggests we subconsciously or even consciously choose where we put our empathy and what causes we engage with and particularly to whom we are providing empathy and compassion. Often we see certain cultural expectations and influences surrounding individual behavior, identity, and lived experience. And the meaning of empathy varies and is practiced differently across cultures, but generally we understand an empathetic person to be one to you know, understand and sit with others in their emotions, um, can share their pain, and would likely care enough to help to the best of their ability. Um, empathy may come from uh, love or obligation, so it's easy to say that most people have empathy for their friends, their family, and those in their close community, but it can be more difficult to be able to provide that same empathy or compassion for people outside of the circle because they may not share the same culture, the same ethnicity, uh, the same beliefs, or the same lifestyle as you. You know, this really is what encompasses um, selective empathy. You can look at this on, in the global sense as well, uh, where we, we can see societies often caring uh, more about the global conflicts that they can relate to. Uh, for example, the war in Ukraine was covered by ABC, CBS, and NBC for a total of 562 minutes in the first month of the war. Uh, that's more coverage than the invasion of Afghanistan in 2001, which was 306 minutes from, from these top three U.S. networks. Um, you know, not to mention, while there was ample, uh, ample coverage of Ukraine, the wars in Yemen or Ethiopia were simply pushed to the side. Um, you know, why is that? I, I mean, we can all empathize with the atrocities that are happening in, in Ukraine, but why hasn't the response uh, been the same uh, for Ethiopia, where there have been thousands of casualties and millions of people displaced as well? Um, this in of itself is you know, reflective of many forms of discrimination. A lot of political things are involved here, but it really is a model um, of what selective compassion and selective empathy look like. Thank you, Zozan. So how does this relate back to our work with victims of sexual violence? So when we tie this uh, concept into victim blaming and you know, how this affects uh, victims of sexual violence, it's important to notice how and where um, adequate services are provided, um, and particularly to who, uh, you know, who is receiving these services. Um, LGBTQ plus survivors and survivors of color are generally not provided with the same level of care and compassion as their white, straight, and cisgender counterparts. One of the most re-traumatizing experiences survivors have to face, um, you know, is, is this constant seeking help. Uh, they have to explain their story, their, their experiences and their emotions over and over again. So if you're trying to get help but continue facing barriers, um, you know, such as racism and discrimination, 
it would be you know, increasingly difficult and painful trying to seek out these you know, much needed services. Um, that this is a, a gap uh, in the victim service provider community. Um, you know, there are providers that genuinely want to do good for their communities and care about survivors of sexual violence. Um, but there, you know, there are also uh, ones that are not publicly funded and don't really need to follow um, certain regulations or oversight, which creates the perfect situation for what you might think is a provider that is accessible to all survivors uh, that actually is not um, and doesn't have to be. Um, you know, on the flip side, what's great is that many victim service providers are focusing on filling this gap and ensuring trauma-informed and survivor-centered uh, services, you know, such as many of the rape crisis centers across Pennsylvania who, you know, adhere to and practice um, non-discriminatory practices. So let's discuss why exactly these practices of victim blaming and selective compassion are harmful. So they contribute to a victim's feeling of shame, guilt, and it delays healing. Victims feel less safe to report, and offenders are less likely to be prosecuted. It also reinforces a dangerous societal and systemic attitude that defends a perpetrator's actions. The reality is, survivors of sexual violence who are constantly faced with social barriers that keep them in cycles of trauma and systemic oppression are those who absolutely need support and should not have to face the same barriers when seeking help. So Jamie's is on. How do we do better? I think, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind is just, you know, challenging and bringing awareness to our own implicit biases. You know, we bring so much to the table and so much baggage ourselves. And a lot of the time we are not even aware it's unconscious, right? So just not being afraid to question our own reasoning and to hear um, if we're making mistakes. If we do that, we acknowledge it and we move forward in our learning. That's such a good point, Jamie. And, you know, another thing to point out here is that we know language um, you know, is powerful. It's, it's important to actively ensure that we use language that uplifts survivors of sexual violence and does not stigmatize or discriminate. Um, you know, I've heard some uh, programs across the, uh, the nation that kind of talk about how they work to restore dignity um, in survivors of sexual violence, um, you know, as if they had done something wrong, or, or just this idea that we have to restore anything for survivors of sexual violence is harmful to their uh, healing, to their self-esteem, to society's collective ideas of what it means to be a survivor of sexual violence. I agree that language is so important, and I'm such a strong advocate of the idea that survivors are not broken. And really, I don't think that people can be broken. Um, you know, survivors don't need corrective or micromanaged care to be adequately supported. And really just listening and learning from the survivor, learning how to best offer your tools and your support to help meet their goals and do that in a way uh, that's trauma-informed and with a public health approach. It's imperative if we want to help pave a path for survivors to heal and to succeed. Right, exactly. I mean, you know, there are some programs that could benefit from, you know, some more introspective evaluation. And it can certainly be a great opportunity to adopt trauma-informed and non-discriminatory practices and policies you know, that truly help the survivor and keep them safe and adequately supported. Um, you know, programs can also ensure uh, that their guidelines or stipulations are as clear as possible to survivors and other providers as well. Um, and they can uh, also learn from other programs that are prioritizing this kind of equality uh, for survivors. Great. Thank you, Jamie and Zozan. So it sounds like we need to be aware of the language we're using, how we're saying things, how we're describing things. 
you know, meeting the survivors where they're at and not pushing them to be at a place that we want them to be. And, you know, doing some data and some evaluation, seeing what we need to do and what we need to continue to change to do better. If you suspect someone may be in danger or in a situation where violence or abuse is occurring, please contact 911. And additionally, contact a crisis center or hotline for more information, referrals, trainings, or guidance on the situation. You can always visit the PCAR website at pcar.org to find help near you. Additionally, we'll put more resources in our show notes, including the implicit bias test from Harvard that Jamie mentioned earlier, and a lot of other great resources for you to continue learning about this. Thank you both. Thank you. Thanks again. Any views or opinions expressed on PA Centered by staff or their guests are solely their own and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of PCAR or PCAR's funders.